British science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke is known for saying any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. That's how I've always felt about my car. I don't particularly know much about how my car runs other than the basics. Sure, I do maintenance, but what really goes on under the hood might as well be magic to me. After beginning to study soil life in the rhizosphere in depth, I realized that I had that same regard for water. I've always just kind of watered my plants without really knowing what was going on under the hood. I had other stuff I had to do, so I just added water and went about my other business. In its own way, too, water is indistinguishable from magic. During today's episode, we're going to talk about what water is and where it comes from, water harvesting, the responsibility that water has inside the pot, some thoughts on water quality, and finally some best practices for actually watering your plants and listening to the plant telling you her needs. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we give away very cool prizes to folks who sign up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. If your company budgeted thousands of dollars for cannabis conventions in 2020, which are all now canceled, I invite you to consider moving your marketing investment to Shaping Fire. For only a fraction of what it would cost you to attend just one convention, you can advertise for nearly a year on Shaping Fire. It has been a busy couple weeks as other companies have reached out to Shaping Fire because their whole year of customer outreach events was just canceled, and now they are scrambling for new ways to reach their customers. The audience for Shaping Fire is made up of curious cannabis enthusiasts, entrepreneurs, and home growers, and you can reach them for less than the price of a postcard each. Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out more. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. Today, my guest is geologist and living soil expert, Leighton Morrison. Leighton has been a lifelong enthusiast of both aquaponics and living soil. His obsession with Biosphere 2 led him to set up an aquaculture system with the Rodale Institute. Leighton worked with world-renowned soil biologist Dr. Elaine Ingham, blending his aquaculture byproducts with traditional compost and worm castings to prove that natural inputs could effectively replace synthetics in cultivation. Leighton currently is founder of Kingdom Aquaponics and invented their line of living compost and compost tea products. Leighton is a sought-after speaker and co-founder of the Series of Traveling Science of Organic Regenerative Cannabis Cultivation Conferences. Leighton was recently here for episode 54 to talk about soil, its geological origins, and how to mirror the layers of the earth in your container garden for optimum microbe life and water drainage. After the recording, Leighton and I talked at length about water, and this episode started to form in my mind. I decided with the outdoor growing season coming up fast, an in-depth discussion of water would be in order. So we scheduled a second episode together pretty quickly, and today we offer it to you. Welcome to the show, Leighton. Hey, Shango. Great to be back, my friend. Great yeah, to be back. Yeah, we're really happy to have you back, and again, so surprisingly soon. I'm sorry I missed my uh, recent trip down there because we're all in quarantine, but I'll look forward to seeing you down there in, in Southern California when I can. 
So yeah, looking forward to it. So let's get right into it. You know, one of the things that that everybody, including me, really liked about the last time you were on the show is that you're not afraid to talk in geological terms, which when you're talking about soil is really informative. And I figured, you know, let's jump right into the deep end of the pool this time again and start with a, you know, start with a meta question that, you know, we all are so concerned and aware of the quality of our water and how much water that we are feeding our plants and making sure we use clean water for compost teas and everything. Dude, where did water come from? Well, that's definitely jumping into the deep end, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) All right. There's two trains of thought on that. Um, One train and that, which has been pretty much typical of um, science if up until recently. And that was, it was came from comets. So it was not an originally here. I mean, we know somewhat of how the planets are formed. We talked about that last time. So, you know, the surface of the earth was molten rock. So, you know, how does water stay on molten rock, right? So basically the theory up until recently was that it all came from comets. And we know for sure that there is a tremendous asteroid belt um, that has just limitless comets that are all water that are trapped up. Now, some other uh, geophysicists are starting to say that, no, 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 it came from a material called carbonaceous chondrite, all right? And it's, it's one of the earliest known uh, minerals, it, it generally considered an asteroid. Um, but it, the ironic thing is that it has about 20% um, mineral content of water in a solid form that's not ice it it gets it gets complicated all right so the theory this this theory is that no 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 the 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 water was always here in the form formed in the rocks it just took up the heating process and then the cooling process for that to be set free and to rebond into h2o as we know water today so i mean again science will probably uh come up with with more answers for this as time progresses but i mean science is so amazing just in the in the few years that i've known you look what's happened to you know like the biological kingdoms have been broken up uh diatoms are now into thrown into the algae kingdom uh flagellates are now thrown into the algae kingdom and they're probably all going to shift again so um, it's an interesting time to be alive and, and because we have such incredibly powerful tools that we never used to have um, even five years ago. So um, in that regard, it's, it, it's pretty interesting. Um, I still got to believe that, that because of the volume of water on our planet, that there was some kind of terrestrial uh, impacts that, that, um, that were brought, uh, caused by comets that brought in that, that you know, huge mass amounts of ice. And while I don't, you know, I'm not a scientist of that sort, uh, but it could also appear to me that it could be both, right? That there, yeah. th- that the water came from comets. And then also, I mean, you just totally blow my, blew my mind that there could be deposits of water that was solid, that was not ice. I'm like, oh God, I need to go look up the Wikipedia on that to even, you know, that, that you know, not on my show, but that is another buddy's science show in and of itself, uh, t- trying to understand that. Yeah, I mean it's it's really cool. I mean it's so it's so bizarre that most of the metals in this in these you know um, chondrites um, are actually in a silicate oxidate and sulfides form. They're not even metal. So that shows you you know that we're, there's some science here that we haven't gotten to yet. 
um, that will probably answer some of these questions in better detail as as you know we learn more and more about it. But I agree. My my gut feeling it was, is was it was a combination of both. Um, to answer the question bluntly. Yeah, right on. Cool. So, so let's 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 bring us up multiple billions of years to the now and get a little more grounded in in how water and how we're using it today. So, what is the role of fresh water in the in the soil of our pots and fields? You know, I think that a lot of us, including me, tend to take water for granted. It's like, well, you, you put the water in and it causes some life and then we got some plants and if my plants droop, add more water. And that's pretty much like as much as most of us know. Um, but but, but I, I know from talking with you that there are ac- there's actual jobs that water has in the rhizosphere and I think we'd all be interested in that. So, so please wade into that. All right, water is the universal solvent um, in, in terms of pH. Um, if we have a acid or a base, um, they do different things. They, they attract different um, minerals to them. And, and in the, the periodic table, these elements are available in different pH, pHs. Some are available only in low pH. Some are available in high pH. Generally, most of these elements are available in the middle, uh, we call neutral uh, water. So understanding that water is an acid, um, I'm going to take you. I'm going to take you back to uh, nuclear science. Um, when they originally started building uh, nuclear reactors to generate power, <clears throat> the first thing that they noticed was that um, they would have mineralization occurring on the rods, and the rods would get thicker, thicker as the minerals came out of solution. Um, and attached themselves to these rods. Now, if two rods touched touched each other, yee, that's it. that's called a meltdown. Uh, nothing good comes from that. So they quickly realized that they could not use regular spring water. Um, they needed to do a scrub, a mineral scrub of the water. So then came reverse osmosis. And to understand reverse osmosis technology, it's essentially like putting water in a rubber glove and squeezing it through the pores of the rubber. How deep is that, dude? Yeah. I would think that that's just like a ridiculous level of filtration is the idea, right? Yeah. You're basically stripping it down to H2O. Nothing else is coming through it. And again, water is the universal solvent. So it eats everything. It can either preserve it or it can eat it. So it's really a unique element um, in so many ways, not to mention you can't live without it. No life would be created if we did not have water. Everything has water in it. Water is the commonality of all forms of life on this planet. So um, in that regards, if you take water and you squeeze it through a rubber glove and you get just H2O, as soon as that water comes in contact with anything, it's going to automatically start pulling stuff off of it because it's it's a it's a solvent. It's its essence is to transport nutrients, minerals, vitamins throughout the body, throughout the plant, throughout the soil system, and into the microbes. Everything everything has to have water as as a uh, a base for life. So it's uh, it's. It's really interesting that the deeper you dive down that rabbit hole, um, to just think that this one element, this one thing is the foundation of all life. 
So, so its role in the soil then is essentially to what be be a grabber and a mover. Um, mm-hmm. it, its very existence um, makes sure that I don't know nutrition and other things in the rhizosphere are not sedentary and move around in a lot of the ways that I consider like mycelium networks, water is its own kind of movement network. Absolutely. Because it's a solvent and it's a transporter and it can release these minerals and vitamins. Um, consider it a taxi cab, uh, you know, or I love your, you know, comparison to, you know, the mycorrhizae or saprophytic. It's moving one thing to other places um, and allowing whatever is necessary to be brought to the table um, in all life forms. Is the only, I guess I'll say, engine to move the water gravity so that when we water, the water starts at the top of the soil and then gravity is pulling it down until um, I guess that it becomes so such a small amount that it no longer, there's no longer a significant gravitational pull and then it just stops? Or even after water comes to rest, does it still have a tendency to move? Great question. So we know water has a unique um, ability to be in a liquid, gas, or solid. So you missed one thing called evaporation Mm. and also wicking. So in the presentation I did at Humble this year at the conference, uh, I put up a slide showing a bottle of water with red dye in it. And the gentleman dipped a a hemp wick into the one bottle that was full all the way down till it got wet, you know, right to the tops of his fingers. And then he pulled the wick out and stuffed that wick into the bottle that was empty next to it. And what happened over the course of 48 hours was they equaled out. So that's water moving against gravity. It's going up the string over and down. So, um, water has some really unique, um, properties that are very different from pretty much anything, any other element on this planet, because again, it can be liquid, solid, or gas. So in evaporation, which is really cool, um, the water's getting purified. It's getting distilled. So it, it, the sun comes out, evaporates the water off the ocean and desalinates it. And that H2O in a gaseous form goes up into the up into the atmosphere. Um, it gets cold and it starts to collect together and to form clouds. And then those clouds get, you know, very very dense and compacted to the point where those molecules start to touch each other and they start to form raindrops. And then they come back to Earth pure and clean until air pollution. Right. Ooh. Now we have acid rain and all alkaline rain and all these other problems with 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 the earth cleaning and cleansing the water. So with with my originally suggesting that gravity just pulls the water down in our pots and fields and you now adding evaporation and wicking, um is it possible that after I water and the water finds its way down to the bottom of the pot that um, the dryness of the pot above it could wick the water back up? And is it possible that during the warmth of the day, the water could evaporate up into the upper layers of the pot without leaving the container? Well, remember, um, 
that's why we got into that soil system. Yeah, because the a horizon is the heart and lungs is the ability for water to wick from lower back up. So without that, if you were just organic matter, the answer is no, because you don't have that tight pore space that's required to allow wicking to occur. So back to, you know, the last podcast, we talked about the horizons and how critical they are to function in uh, in a natural system because that's exactly what they do. Um, the, the surface dries out due to the sun and the wind and naturally because of the soil system was was built through geological time, it allows that migration, that, that wicking to happen and provide, pull the, the moisture from down deep, perhaps groundwater even lower, to be wicked up into the soil profiles to give the, the surface plants um, the moisture that they need. Wow. All right. So, so now I have a better understanding that, that water is not going just in one direction. It's actually moving around based on, on wicking the composition of the soil, um, you know, day and night heat. And so, so now I guess this is how it explains to me how that taxi cab service really works because as water is being pushed and pulled in all these different directions, it becomes a vehicle for all these other nutrients that, that since water is grabby and moves, the water is going by these nutrients as a solvent. It grabs mm-hmm. these nutrients and then it's pushed and pulled all around the pot. And that's how it's moving around. Is that, is that a reasonable way to describe it? That's spot on. Oh, that's spot okay. on. I, I think, think about um, bubble hash, right? Water is the solvent. It's the universal ultimate solvent. It does everything. Uh, from breaking things down to to preventing them from breaking down. If you look at the pH in the bogs up in uh, Russia, where we find those mammoths that are completely mummified, the reason they were mummified, they were in water, but the, the reason they were mummified was because of the pH, not the water. Because then you look at water at swamps where it's just rotting trees and, and, and roots and everything else down and turning it into organic matter. So it's really, again, a very, very cool element, and uh, it's something that you could ponder some pretty long and hard about, you know, the power of water. Right on, right on. So um, the last question I want to ask you before we uh, before we start moving on to our first break is that, um, you know, one of the things that I've realized from being primarily an outdoor grower is that when I um, take my pots at the end of the season – and I throw them in the garage and, um, you know, just, just for storage. And then when I bring them out in the spring, they're very dry. And, and then when I add water to them, um, there's like a, you know, the a breath of life, some sunshine and some water, um, changes the soil. And, and, and granted after hearing you at the regenerative conference in Michigan last year, I realized I should no longer be putting my pots you know, in the garage over the winter, I should just let them be outside, let them go through you know, the full year cycle. And then when I come back in the spring, um, you know, they've, they've like totally gone feral, right? There's, there's, there's more worms and more life and just more everything in them. And I'm like, oh, great. Well, I'm just going to put a little hole in it and put my start into it and, and off they go on gangbusters. But I think that a lot of folks 
you know, keep their pots like I used to where we put them in the barn or, or whatever and they, they, they kind of fall asleep, right? I always kind of think about it as the soils hibernating, right? And so I know though that a lot of the constituents of the soil wake up when we add a little bit of warmth from the sunshine and, and, and some water. What does water do to a dehydrated rhizosphere that brings it back? Um, great question. All right. So um, look at it like this. The, the reason the pot goes hydrophobic is because the bacteria that's colonized on the surface of the, the potting mix or the, the organic matter or the sand, silt, and clay, whatever it is, cyst. So they find themselves in a hostile environment. They do not want to die. Um, so they basically uh, create a wax coating around the outside of them. And that's why when I did um, some work way back when it, and down in uh, University of Arizona, I would always be so intrigued at how soil could float. You know, I'd take, grab a handful of soil, throw it in a bucket of water, and it would float. And the reason was because of the biology. The bacteria had, had cysted, and now because it's wax coated on the outside of it, it basically can't sink. It can't, it can't, it can't open up and dissolve into solution. So the, the real answer is that that's driven by the bacteria and, and the other um, biology um, because it has cysted. And we know for sure that, that these cysts, whether they're bacteria or protozoa, can live in ice for hundreds of thousands of years, maybe more. Um, and we also know that pretty much life came from comets. And so those comets were floating around in nothingness for who knows how long and then come into the Earth's atmosphere, heat up, like you said, warm up, and that ice melts, and all of a sudden, all of those microbes come back to life again because they've found themselves in an environment that supports them uh, and allows them to grow. And I love the fact that you listen to me and keep your pots outside because what's happening is in those seasons, you know, this, there's definitely some ice forming in there uh, as the temperature gets colder. Um, so that's forming little water pockets trapped in that soil mix. And then as the temperature warms up outside, things slowly come back to life. So you're not taking this pot that's completely dried out, dumping water on it and hoping that the water starts to sink in. You're, it's going to take you, you know, days to get those to recharge when, when you're allowing them to do naturally um, in overwintering outside, especially if you, you know, cover them with hay or leaves, um, they're going to be just gangbusters ready to go by the time you get out there with your, with your seedlings. So, um, yeah, you're preventing, you're preventing life to be so harsh that the biology has to completely lock itself up and then take days to come back to life. So that, <clears throat> that idea that all of the life in the pot, when it dries out, um, gets this waxy exterior is like super interesting to me. Um, you know, I, when you said that they, they, they make themselves become cysts, um, I'm picturing, um, all of the, of the bacteria and the mycorrhiza and the, you know, wild variety of microbes. And I, I don't know, maybe all the living things turn themselves into cysts and they make this waxy exterior so that they can preserve themselves until the, you know, the bad conditions are gone. So then we add water to them and some warmth and sunshine 
what is the process of them getting rid of this waxy this this waxy outer shell is it do they like come out of them like we imagine a baby chick coming out of an egg or is it when enough water goes past them the water acts as a solvent and breaks down the waxy exterior and says you know hey all you you know living forms inside these cysts i'm going to remove your winter coat for you or your dehydrated dehydration coat for you and and then they're free or or do do they initiate it from within the cyst that is a great question my friend um first of all let's let's correct one thing <clears throat> mycorrhizae don't cyst hmm. they sporulate Sporulate. So they create they create spores. Okay. So it's a little different. You're more into sexual reproduction as far as fungal going into a uh, suspended state of animation, whereas um, the bacteria and the biology uh, do actually cyst, or, or the protozoa actually do cyst up, and and nematodes cyst as well. I'm gl- I'm glad you made that correction in me, dude, because I've been I have been you know speaking in a way that suggests that spores were cysts and i didn't realize that they were not in that family no and you know it's really cool um and i've talked about this before but what is occurring inside that spore there's a whole nother universe i mean a universe of of things that we don't know how how they're how they're alive they're too small for us to study we don't understand how it's like an egg that that it naturally hatches when the right environment is allowed uh, or happens or occurs. So yeah, I've done some neat work with, um, my buddy Efren, um, about, you know, trying to understand more about what is going on inside of a spore versus what's going on inside of a cyst. So to answer your question on cysts, um, the, the thought is that the, the organism <clears throat> has the components stored in what it's called their pantry, which is part of the oreganellos. I, I don't want to go too deep on the, the, the parts of a cell or a bacteria, um, but <clears throat> pretty much it's storing the materials necessary to create that coating around the outside of it. So the real mystery is, is the water what's eating the coating away or is the water solubilizing the coating so that the cell can pull it back in and store it for the next time it needs it or is it kind of melt away and the cell as it starts to come alive starts reproducing that and stores it in his pantry for the next time um, that it needs to cyst up so that's something that that science is going to need to work on uh, to get a better understanding of is it just something that it produces is it something that it stores or is it a combination perhaps of both but um, water definitely water and warmth will definitely allow that bacteria to come out of cyst form Wow. All right. So um, I'm sure that there are folks who are listening who now know that they're going to leave their pots outside over winter, but that there's probably also people who are in the situation that I was in last year when I learned it from you who had already, you know, put all their their fabric pots in the barn, you know? And so is there a best practice for waking up a pot that has gone to sporization and cystization? <laughs> <laughs> New words, I love it. Yeah. So Good so it, Yeah, so how, how, what was there a best way to to wake it all up? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Just bring it outside. Um, you're going to get, you're going to get dew. Um, you're going to get condensation. You're going to get cool at night, warm during the day in the sunlight. So that's, that's a gentle, a gentle way to awaken it, to pull it out, um, in spring when you have your starts ready to go. Um, now you're shocking everything. You're shocking your plant. You're shocking the, the, the natural, you know, order of systems, uh, in that soil system. So yeah, I would just bring them out, you know, a couple weeks early before you want to plant them. If you did store them, um, and just let them, you know, sit in the sun and, and, you know, don't hesitate to give them a little water, but know that at night you're going to get dew, um, and that they're going to gently wake up and, and then they'll be ready for you to plant instead of trying to force the plant into them. As far as adding the water to them to kind of trying to help them jumpstart so you don't have to wait for the rainwater, um, do we want to just like drench the hell out of them? And do we want to use just our regular water or is this a great opportunity for us to be using a compost tea instead of a straight water? Well, I don't know as I'd, I'd put the energy into making a compost tea because basically it's going to run off. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to overwater it because now you're, <clears throat> now you're washing the nutrients. Remember, water is mm-hmm. the ultimate solvent. So it's going to be starting to pull things that you want to stay in that soil system out. So again, I, you know, if 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 the mistake is made and they're put into a basement or a garage or a barn, then just put them outside for a couple weeks before, and you, you're probably not going to even have to water them. Um, I mean. I'm not telling you not to water them, but don't overwater them because then you're just stripping stripping things that you want to keep. Right on. It actually kind of reminds me of when I had um, my surgery back in college and they gave me a general anesthetic. And as they were bringing me out, they were giving me little sips of water, right? They weren't giving me lots of water. They were just getting me a little bit of water to, you know, get my system, you know, acclimated and going. So now I'm thinking like, oh, you know, same thing with pots. You don't want to like just drown the pot, but go ahead and give your, you know, depending on the size of the pot, give it a couple drinks, you know, over the first through days to slowly prime the pump. Absolutely. And another thing you can do too is put all the pots in a, you know, in a big square and cover them with a tarp. What the tarp's going to do is it's going to heat up from the sunlight and it's going to wick water up through the bottom and condensate on the surface on the underside of that tarp. So you're, you're pulling, you're pulling moisture up through the bottom of the pot. Naturally, you're, you're hitting it with this, you know, gentle, uh, misting that's occurring on the inside of the tarp, you know? And so now you've generally just, you've just, you've used nature to, um, you know, evaporate and pump the water up into the pot from the bottom and then drop it down in drop micro droplets from the top. So that might be even better way to you know, really get them going if you need to quickly. There we go. I knew I would squeeze one more best practice out of you before the commercial, (laughs) dude. (laughs) All right. So let's go ahead and take our first short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. And my guest today is soil biologist, Leighton Morrison. Pre-rolls have come a long way since the early days of normalization. When you choose Saints Joints, you are smoking all-flower, top-shelf pre-rolls with terpenes that will sculpt your high in a way that dry, old pre-rolls just can't. Whereas most brands release pre-rolls as an afterthought, for the last five years, Saints Joints has focused on their line of exotic, curated joints. And while some companies just chase the hype strains, Saints Joints goes deeper, searching out hard-to-find strains, unexpected crosses, and nearly forgotten land races and classics. And some hype ones, too. 
Not only does a joint from Saints smoke incredibly well, they have fine-tuned every step of the process so you don't get runs in the paper. The joint is just the right density to have a nice pull, and the joint stays lit even if you get a bit chatty. Saints joints boxes are works of art and will spark conversation when you pull them out at parties. Saints award-winning boxes change with every release, feature edgy outsider art, and often raise awareness of important issues like equal rights. Saints boxes are so desired that many collect them and display them in their homes. Ask your bud tender for Saints joints and have a premium joint experience. Now, if you are a licensed cannabis cultivator, I have an extra message for you. Saints is looking for partners in legal cannabis states to expand the availability of the Saints Joints brand. Do you grow exceptional cannabis flower but are less excited about all the effort, cost, and risk of launching your own brand? Saints Joints may be just the partner you are looking for. Already established in California, Washington, and Oklahoma, and recognized by Entrepreneur Magazine and Green Entrepreneur as a cannabis industry leader, the Saints Joints brand will set you apart in your home market. The best thing I can recommend is for you to visit their Instagram at Saints Joints and look at their patented drawer design boxes. Become that brand everyone is talking about without having to build it from scratch. Check out the Instagram at Saints Joints and then visit saintsjoints.com to find out more. There are lots of good seed makers out there. Every once in a while, someone becomes legendary. The Mendocino, California cannabis breeder called Mandelbrot is one of these people. Mandelbrot was also known as Ra's Truth, and his cultivars are known as the foundation for the Emerald Triangle's world-famous gasoline-scented terpene profile. Back in the day, when it was really hard to find quality genetics and education, Mandelbrot was advocating for organic growing techniques and providing exceptional seeds that would sell out as soon as they hit the shelves. Mandelbrot lived too short of a life, dying in 2015, but while he was with us, he created several connoisseur-level cannabis masterpieces like Oil Spill, The Truth, and Royal Kush. No matter if you approach growing cannabis more as a toker or a breeder, you will find something that delights you in Mandelbrot's selections. Because while some strains are better to grow or to smoke, Mandelbrot's creations excel in every category, and that's why people keep talking about them even today. Emerald Mountain Legacy continues the Ra's Truth tradition by preserving these coveted genetics for future generations, unchanged as they were originally created in the mid-2000s. Emerald Mountain Legacy also creates tasteful, modern crosses to Mandelbrot's classics. These lines, worked by Mandelbrot's brother Ben, further their family's genetics in a spirit that Mandelbrot would have approved of. Check out the Emerald Mountain Legacy Instagram and website to see photos of these plants and learn more about Mandelbrot and his infamous strains. Emerald Mountain Legacy seeds are available online from seed banks and distributors, including Labyrinth Seed Company, The Regenerative Seed Company, and Pure Sativa. Emerald Mountain Legacy, keeping Mandelbrot's legacy alive. In times like these, when so many cannabis companies are growing their flower in gigantic warehouses and fields using synthetic nutrients, it is good to know that there are authentic California heritage growers using natural farming techniques and sunshine to cultivate cannabis flowers for you. California has produced the best cannabis in the world for generations, and the idea that massively scaled industrial cannabis production can provide the same quality as small batch, lovingly cultivated flowers is just silly. Moontime Medicinals is located in Humboldt County on the lush South Fork of the Eel River watershed in the epicenter of the American cannabis heartland. 
Moontime Medicinals grows under the bright California sun in greenhouses using only natural farming techniques like hugel culture, compost teas, whole food fertilizers, and fermented plant juices. Every part of their growing process plays its own part in nature, and nothing synthetic is injected into the process. The result is big, beautiful cannabis flowers with wide-ranging terpene profiles that taste like great cannabis should. If you live in California, ask your bud tender for Moontime Medicinals and visit Moontime Medicinals on the web and Instagram. Moontime Medicinals is also available as part of the Redwood Roots family. Moontime's whole flowers appear in Redwood Roots curated joint packs alongside other heritage cannabis cultivators like Lady Sativa Farm, Ridgeline Farms, and others. Moontime Medicinals, top shelf cannabis grown in harmony with nature. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shangolos, and our guest today is soil biologist Leighton Morrison. So if you're still with us after making it through our meta first set uh, where we talked all about where water comes from and what its job is. Uh, in the second set, we're going to talk about uh, more things that actually are going to be useful in your cultivation process. And we're going to start by talking about sourcing of water, because there's a lot of different places that you can get water of varying qualities. And we want to make sure that you understand uh, what your options are when choosing where to get your water. So Leighton, let's start talking about a little bit about water tests. You know, I know that, um, you know, decoding a water test could be an entire show in and of itself. And that's not what we're doing today. But for most people, they know that they should get a water test so that they know what's in their aquifer or city water or the rainfall near their house or their, their you know, runoff or whatever. So people generally know that they should get one. Um, and, and, and I've also kind of have the belief that most waters are usable. Um, but I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, red flags in a water test that have got to be taken care of for you to be able to successfully grow a cannabis plant and talk a little bit about pH as well. Okay. Um, again, nice rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's start with the understanding of um, how water moves under the ground. Okay. So Everyone thinks, oh, I drill a well and I got well water. I got great water. Um, in the most cases, that's true. Um, but then you have to start thinking about, well, where I drilled my well, um, I've basically created a uh, opening in the earth that allows the surface water and groundwater to travel down into the aquifer. So in many ways, you've actually – expose that aquifer to things that it, you weren't supposed to. Wow. Um, so you could, you could contaminate your own aquifer during the drilling process. It's happened on Long Island. Wow. Uh, and they, they drilled these wells in the middle of the potato fields and then they fertilized the hell out of the fields and everybody got cancer. So, you know, that's just one case of it. And I've, I've actually had been fortunate enough to work with a gentleman who does um, groundwater mapping for um, basically Superfund sites where they have these, you know, horribly toxic chemicals um, that are in solution, are moving, the water's transporting them. And they're trying to figure out how bad it is, how deep and how heavy the concentration is. And he basically made an earth rubber. So he made a rubber that is can be as long as you want it to be, and he's drilled down, you know, 
thousands of feet and it's one contiguous rubber and basically the what he does is he takes this he drills a hole um, and then he based on that hole he's already prefabricated this this rubber that he drops into the hole and fills up with water and as the water goes into the rubber it pushes it all the way down to the bottom of the hole now the cool thing is on the outside of that rubber is a special coating that turns colors based on what chemical or compound it comes in contact with so by drilling a series of holes he can see which way things are migrating or not migrating and that is critical because you know these sites that have to be cleaned up um, they need to know where where should where do you start cleaning up? Where which way is the water transporting these these you know horrible chemicals? So now you start to understand that even water traveling uphill. This 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 I love this uh, Mount Lemon in Arizona. You can go travel through five distinct climates, or or I want to call uh, successionary plant systems. Um, from the base, you you're start at the bottom of the mountain, you're in a desert. I mean, it's hot, 110 degrees, uh, very little growth or, or plant life. Um, you, you drive for, you know, a couple, uh, not an hour, maybe 40 minutes. Now you're up into these, you know, the big cactuses, the big three-prong cactuses you see in the, the old westerns. Now you're heavily in, surrounded by them, and you've got leather cactuses and more scrub and sage. And then you move up into, uh, now you've got some, some shrubs, some deciduous plants, um, and then move in a little bit further. You're, you're getting into uh, now deciduous trees. And then finally, at the top of Mount Lemon, you're in the conifers, and it's snow. There's snow on the ground in the middle of summer. Interestingly enough, that as the aquifer has gone down, the has dropped in levels down in the desert near uh, Tucson and between Tucson and Phoenix because all the water that's been pulled out of it, um, it has changed the hydrology, and now there's the water is not seeping out at the top of the mountain like it used to. Um, it, it, there were rivers coming down this mountain. So how the hell did the water get f from the desert where there is no water to the top of that mountain to the point where it created streams and rivers coming down? That's pressure. That's that's geology. So so the weight of 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 the earth around it is actually squeezing that water all the way up to the top of that mountain and because that mountain has a you know a thinner layer uh because of geological tectonic plate movements the water is allowed to squeeze out of that so <clears throat> in understanding you know how water moves in aquifers and in the ground it's critical to to do your homework where is my water coming from another great example of this is cape cod Cape Cod's a sandbar, all right? It was formed uh, back when the glaciers were uh, present, and as they receded, they, they pushed all this, dumped all of this uh, glacial till out into the ocean and created Cape Cod, right? Well, obviously, there would be no aquifer in Cape Cod, right? Mm -hmm. Not true. There's a river coming out of the groundwater in Barnstable, and it, this is a big river. I mean, this is no joke. Um, one of my good friends, uh, Keith Wilder, um, where I collect my fish frass from the oldest trout farm in America, that trout farm was set up in that spot because of how incredibly pure that water was and how much of it was just bubbling up out of the ground. I mean, you walk around his property and you can see water bubbling up out of the ground. Dude, the million dollar question is, is it fresh? The water actually comes from uh, Canada, uh, north um, – 
New York and parts of Vermont. And it actually, believe it or not, it's, it's, it's wonderful water. The interesting thing is it's high in nitrate. So <clears throat> we'd have to get along back to uh, aquatic biology and understanding how organic nitrogen, organic nitrogen is not in the usable form. But with the introduction of bacteria, specifically nitrify or nitrobacter, it'll convert it to ammonia. And then the ammonia converts to nitrite, and then the, the nitrite converts to nitrate. Now, nitrate is harmless to plants and animals, um, and we can actually use it, whereas uh, nitrite can be toxic in heavy concentrations. So, <clears throat> again, he's got all of the aquatic organisms because he's an aquaculture facility. He grows um, a tremendous amount of uh, biomass of, of trout so that there, he naturally has the protection against the nitrites. Um, and, and after his post water treated, the nitrites are gone. They've been completely morphed into nitrate. So he's actually doing the water to system a favor by cleaning it with his fish before it's released into the streams and, and into the swamps around him. So, so late, so let's, let's, let's bring this on back home to, to the water tests. So I think that when you, when you started this, this beaut, this super interesting story, I think you were starting with, with, you got to know where your water's from for your water tests. Mm -hmm. And and the idea that the earth was pressing down on the groundwater enough to make it go up the mountain and flow down, that's super badass. So so what are the chemicals that if somebody sees in their water test um, coming out of their aquifer that they should raise a flag and go, oh, this may not be a good place for me to cultivate cannabis? Yeah, cannabis is an accumulator. So anything that's being transported in the water will accumulate in your plant, um, and that's a problem. Um, so backing it up, most water tests are designed to sell you filters. Hmm. So you really need to know where you're sending your water test. Um, I recommend Micro Macro International. Um, Gretchen and her crew of uh, um, scientists are – there to actually test for minerals. They're not, they're not, or, or, um, you know, pesticides, residues and, and toxics, heavy metals, all that. Um, most water companies or places that you send for your water test short of the ones that the well companies work with. Um, I don't recommend you send it to them because they're going to send some guy out there to sell you a filter. So, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not finding the toxins. Those are, those are too expensive to test for. And most people don't test for them. Um, well water is a little different it's because it's uh, considered a potable water they're a little bit tighter on making sure that they are testing um, a more stringent test um, but if you really want to know what the heck's going on you send it down to someone like you know macro micro Gretchen and, and she'll tell you exactly what's going in your water but again you have to think about all right where is that water coming from if you're if you're south of a, an industrial park or, or potentially uh, the water is coming through there, you want to know. And, you know, there are a lot of country or a lot of um, states and counties have done groundwater migration studies. They're very expensive to do, um, but especially around polluted areas, they've been forced to map the groundwater. So I would recommend that you reach out to your local authority and try to find out, hey, did, did anybody map the groundwater? And again, the groundwater is just as important as the aquifer itself. And 
the groundwater, because it's traveling by a pipe that someone drilled a hole in down to get down to the aquifer, they're letting all of that um, potential toxins down in there. Now, they might not be getting as much of it because as that water migrates down that shaft, there is a current in that aquifer. So it could be transporting those toxins away from their pump when they're not using it. Of course, when they're pulling water, they're going to get a little bit a little bit of it up the pipe that they're drinking out of. But for the most part, anything that's coming down the sides of that shaft are going to are going to get pushed into the current. So imagine, you know, you throw a, a tennis ball in the ocean. Well, is it go, is the is the ball getting pulled out with the tide or is it is it getting pushed up against the shore? Same thing is happening on 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 the groundwater level as well as the aquifer level. So you really got to know your business as far as um, you know, if you're if you're going to rely on, you know, the the well to to water your cannabis um, if you're in a um, industrial area like down in LA or San Francisco or San Diego, you got to be really careful. Um, I would almost tend to say you're better off to use town water and tie up the chloramine than you are to trust the well, unless you've done your homework and or sent it off to get a real uh, hardcore water test and analysis. Right on, cool. So so let's hold off on the chloramine discussion for a sec because we're going to get to that in a little bit. But um, so I, I'm I'm starting to kind of like tease out three different threads here as far as like how we would be using the water test. So, so far we've been kind of discussing the kind of research you're going to want to do before you buy a parcel to grow, um, you know, either, either THC cannabis or hemp on. So if you're going to be growing cannabis sativa, do your homework about how the water moves and where the water is moving from before you buy your parcel because cannabis is an accumulator and you could end up growing plants that have got, you know, arsenic or something in them and, and you don't want to deal with that. So, so do your homework first before you buy. Then, then there's a second thread, which is lots of folks who are growing either commercial or for themselves and, and they're already on their parcel. And so, you know, chances are a lot of these people would already know if their water was contaminated and hopefully it's not. And so they, they already know that their water is good enough to grow. And then, and then there's the third category, which are people who are on city water. And, you know, unless you are, you know, living in kind of like a failed water system, like a Flint, Michigan or something. Generally, I would think that most of the city waters are, you know, while, while maybe not epically good, um, they're at least passable for pouring onto our cannabis plants. I hope that's the case. Um, and so then that kind of leaves the, the bugaboo of, of pH because any three of those categories, you could be dealing with water that pH is poorly for growing cannabis. So, so address that specifically. Like I know that like there's still lots of products on the market to pH up or pH down, which are like, you know, I generally consider them a hassle to have to equalize, you know, all the, all the water that I'm going to be offering the plants. How far away from optimum is too far to be doing that all the time and you just need to find a different source? Like, like how, how far from optimum is too far, um, would you say? All right. <clears throat> the scale pH is logarithmic. So say you have a pH of 6. 6.1 um, is 10 times greater than 6. 
6.2 is now 10 times greater than 6.1. So it's logarithmic. So people don't get that, that there's like huge differences between 6 and 8. I mean, it's, it's monumental. Um, 8 is considered too much. Uh, it's too alkaline for plants to grow. Um, there are some... Uh, um, some uh, some some plants that can get away with it, uh, peat for one. Um, but for the most part, it's the the majority of plants cannot tolerate uh, pH above eight or below. Uh, I think it's like four five, uh, four point five. So uh, again, there are some plants that can tolerate that, but they're few and far between. So the vast majority of plants. We want to keep in that neutral zone, and that's where they're going to do great. Now, another thing to take into consideration is that the plant can adjust pH in the rhyosphere. Um, we know this because the plant will excrete and exudate. A certain type of bacteria will grow out, and that bacteria's job is to mine this mineral or that mineral, and it might be slightly off of the pH that the plant or the soil has present. So by, by adjusting the, the specific bacteria that it wants to grow out, it can adjust the pH to allow that uh, mineral to be mined and brought back to the plant through, um, through the uh, nutrient cycling system, the protozoa eating the, the bacteria, etc. So those are your outside parameters of pH and, and that will allow a plant to grow. But also something to take into consideration is as you pour that water on the soil and that water moves through the soil, you're adjusting the pH. Um, I've done a tremendous amount of work with people that have high pH soils or low pH soils and they need to get them adjusted. And the way I generally do that is with compost. Um, you know, I can get compost that's more acid or more base. And so I just tell them, all right, you, you know, you're going to have to either till this in or you're going to have to dig a hole and then blend the existing soil with this compost and then that will equal out. So you, it's, you, it's kind of like if you take uh, a soil system of six and a compost of eight and you mix them 50-50 equally, you will end up with a pH of seven. That that works because of these because these numbers are logarithmic, um, so that's something to keep in mind. Now, as far as as far as the uh, the water systems are concerned, generally speaking, um, city waters are safe. Um, they are forced to test for heavy metals and pesticides. Um, the the one place that they get a little bit <clears throat> um, problematic is that uh, nitrogen cycle where you have the ammonia that they use uh, to mix with chloramine uh, or chloro chlorine and ammonia mixed together make chloramine. So if you have a high level of nitro nitro nitrobacter or nitrogen fixing biology, you're going to start that process of breaking that um, organic matter, say the little tiny leaf or uh, you know something that got pulled into the pipe from the reservoir, that is going to actually start to morph out, start to pull off the ammonia, um, leave the chlorine in place, and then convert the ammonia to nitrite and then to nitrate. So really depends on where you are in the pipeline and to how long or what, what level of biology got into the system to determine, you know, you know whether you're drinking nitrite water or nitrate water. So that's that's the only concern I have with with city water uh, for plants. Now, human consumption will get that's another whole yeah, rabbit. Yeah, totally, it is well, another rabbit hole. So but, let's continue talking about city water because that's where I was going to move to next anyway. So <clears throat> you know, 
Um, one of, not one of, the number one question that I get from people about their city water is how to take out the chlorine. And normally I have to explain to them, I'm like, oh, well, the chlorine is, is easy. You just take the, you leave, pour your water and leave it out overnight and the chlorine off gases. And if you want to do it more quickly, you can stir it for a bit or you can put a bubbler in it and chloramine it's uh, it's volatile and it goes away very quickly but then i also have to tell them i'm like man they don't really use chlorine as much in public waterworks anymore and they're using chloramine instead and unfortunately we're not able to just mix that stuff out it's it's not as volatile and it stays in the water but um, I'd like you to go ahead and, and re, re, repeat the great solution that you offered us last time on, on how to um, neutralize the chloramine in your city water. Yeah, no problem. And, you know, I did want to back up on one point. And, you know, when you're using um, town water or not town water, well water um, for feeding your cannabis plants and then you test your cannabis plant because you're supposed to or you have to on a commercial scale, that cannabis plant's going to tell you if your water's bad or not. As long as you understand that you didn't put anything else into your system and the water was the only input um, that you use. So that means, you know, if you're growing with mineral salts or something like that, the toxins could have come in that way. So you really, now you have to test all these different things. But if you're, you know, again, it's, this is more important in, in a suburbia, uh, urban environment than it is in a rural environment. A rural environment, you're, you're not going to have to worry about your water as much but if if you did use a hemp plant to test your water i think it's a great idea because if you're just using water only that plant's going to tell you if your water's toxic or not because it's going to fail a test for a metal or something so anyway moving on to tying up chloramine so uh, it, chloramine is is basically chlorine and ammonia so if you can and ammonia gases off really easy and chlorine gases off really easy. So all you have to do is break it, break the bond, because chloramine is an ionic bond. So it's a really, really strong one. Pretty much the only thing that can do that, um, well, electrolysis can, but, but more importantly, biology can. Biology does everything, which we know. We've talked about that in the last show. Um, so if you introduce a humate or a humic acid or um, even even a good compost tea uh, that's been concentrated, um, what that's going to do is that's going to get in there and it's going to break that molecule apart and then through aeration it will gas off and you'll be fine. So um, other than sometimes you can have what's called a disinfectant byproduct, um, but those will not hurt plants, but they are harmful to animals and humans. So to get to the nitty-gritty of it, somebody who wants to add... Um, some humates to their water. Um, it's as simple as just taking some matured compost that you may have uh, and putting it in, you know, an, an old nylon or cheesecloth, tying it off and and just dropping it into your water reservoir, right? Um, I like to take it a little bit uh, different path um, because you really want to get that humic acid out of that compost. So I would take the compost, I would saturate it, get it really wet, um, and then put it inside of, uh, say, an old um, washcloth or, or a towel, and, and then dump it on the towel, and then wring the towel out as hard as you can. Now you're getting pure humic and pure fulvic acid, concentrated. 
Whereas if you put the bag in, in the bubbler and brew it, you're not going to get that fast of a release of, of the things that you really need. Um, the pressure um, and the squeezing really helps to get what you're looking for out of out of that compost as fast as possible. Then add that into your brewer and brew your water. But the key again is you need to brew it. You need to move air up through the water column to help break off the any of the leftover gases that are, are trapped in the water away from your uh, out of your water column and into the atmosphere. So that's a little trick for you. Yeah, that's a, that is a good idea. So um, <laughs> I know I'm not the only one who's weighed this in my head. In my early years of um, personal growing for my medical, I'd be like, oh my God, trying to add compost tea to my water and bubble it in my apartment is such a pain in the ass. <laughs> and so will you give us the real breakdown of how necessary it is. I mean, it, every, so many people on in cannabis forums, they are uh, totalitarian, right? They are, you know, you, you must do everything perfectly. But, you know, when it comes to us alone with nobody around in our garden, you know, very often people will cut corners. How bad is it really to use your city water with chloramine to water your plants? I mean, clearly it doesn't kill them because people are growing plants with city water that's untreated all the time. What are we actually losing? Um, you're losing the microbial life. So that's it. I mean, we know that when these things come in contact with biology, and not all of them, um, you know, this was this was the work I did back at Rodale, um, and I would bring in some some city water that I had, um, and I was on the end of a pipe, and it was, I mean, the chlorine was just so brutal. It just burned your eyes when you poured a glass of water. And I brought that down to try to do, you know, side-by-side -side tests at different dilutions to determine, you know, what is killing the biology. And it, it, it does. It definitely seriously reduces the biology. Not all of it, but especially the predators. Um, they take they take the, the big hit. Um, and fungi takes a big hit. Um, the bacteria, most of it can survive, but you're going to lose uh, diversity for sure. So uh, how bad is it to use? It's fine if you're using salts. If you're using a living soil system, eh, you got a problem because you're going you're gonna to constantly need to up the, the biology life in that soil because you use that chloramine water. And it's not like so, you're just watering it once. It's like, you know, every day or every other day, you're hitting it with more chloramine and more chloramine yep. and more chloramine. So, so even, even if you are only killing 10% of the biology when you water, well, if you kill a varying 10% throughout the entire summer or throughout your entire cycle, if you're in a tent, well, you're, you know, you're, you're losing a lot and your plant is living unsupported from the proper biology. Agreed. You're where you're losing it is you're losing potency, uh, cannabinoid production, terpene production, um, cannabinol production. So, you know, that's where you're, that's where you're losing. You're still going to, you're still going to get some good weed. You're still going to be able to get high off of it, but you're not going to be getting what we call plant potential. And if you're looking for plant potential, you really want to get that plant to give you everything that it wants to give you, then you shouldn't be using chloramine water. You should figure out another way. Um, you know, you can boil it, but but now you're concentrating fluoride. Um, you can use, you know, go down and buy bottled water. That's probably your easiest way out of this. Um, I, you know, I love compost tea, but 
you know, based on years of experience traveling the country, looking at people's compost and having them say, oh my God, I make the best compost. My compost is amazing. And I microscope it and there's no life. So again, it's nutrient rich. Yeah, it's, it's great stuff. I'm not knocking your compost, but you didn't make it biologically active. And that's the key. So if you're going to make a compost tea, your goal is to try to get the biology into the soil with the tea. The, the, the tea is the vehicle for getting living biology, advanced predators into your soil system. And so if you're brewing with compost that has no biology in it, what are you really doing? Well, you're, you're getting humic acid and fulvic acid, but you're not increasing the biological level in that soil. So that's where, that's where it gets hairy. When, when you try to talk about hitting full plant potential, um, that's where, you know, you need a microscope or, you know, a trusted, uh, soil food web source for getting your microbes tested. So you know where you are, um, having your compost tested to make sure that you actually have biologically rich compost before you could try to make a tea with it. Um, so, you know, all these things are, are need to be taken into consideration. But if, if your goal is just to grow something to smoke and you're happy with whatever the plant can produce, then don't stress about all these things. Just, you know, life goes on. It, uh, this plant is an amazing, uh, durable, strong, uh, unique plant and can survive in, you know, some of the most harsh conditions uh, the planet can throw at it. So, you know, again, I think you need to, to draw a line and say, am I going for full plant potential? Do I want the best this can possibly do? Then I got to get serious about it. If I'm just trying to grow and I don't have time for all of the, uh, you know, these intricacies, then I'm just going to just add the water and don't stress or, or use town, um, use bottled water because you, you're not, it's not like you're going to need, you know, a hundred gallons of water. If you get five gallon jug, it's probably enough to water your 10 plants, um, you know, for at least a month, right? Yeah, and then, and then you can just go and refill that <clears throat> bottled water up at your local grocery store. Or <clears throat> One of the things I like here in Seattle, you know, I live on Vashon Island across the water from Seattle. The, um, the, um, the Seattle Aquarium actually sells their reverse osmosis water um, out of a little spigot on the side of the building. We used to use it all the time when I was into uh, breeding fish. And, uh, and so that was, that was cool to be able to get very cheaply. Uh, the only reason I point that out is, you know, we don't really want to encourage people to use bottled water as like buying a new bottle every time. Agreed, my friend. And yeah. I should have been more specific. I was talking about those ones, those big jugs that you can do exactly that. You bring them back to the machine, you stick them in there, and it fills it up. Right. Uh, there was, yeah. So, um, but another thing I do want to mention is that reverse osmosis, as great as it is, it has demineralized the water. So it's not particularly good water to grow cannabis or anything else to, to consume. Um, I mean, the studies that are coming out of uh, the Middle East right now, because everything is desalinated over there, um, there's a huge iodine, iodine deficiencies in, in the humans, in the population. And they're getting very sick because they've been drinking this stuff for years and there's no minerals left in it. So I'd prefer you use spring water over RO water, or if you're going to use RO water, you've got to re-add the minerals back into it. That's and interesting. Getting- it's, it's like RO water is not a whole food. No, no, no. I mean, it has its purpose. I mean, you know, and people do drink it. I mean, look, in in most sailboats, they have a little RO underneath the sink. um, And that's their source of water. And it's fine. But you if you live on that water, you are stripping minerals out of your body. Because remember, 
this water is the ultimate universal solvent. So it will actually, if it has no minerals in it and it's stripped and you drink it, it will pull minerals out of your body. Um, so that's, that's the other side. You want your water to be mineralized. Now, that's very important for consumption and for plants too. I mean, it's better that you're, you're giving them those, those you know, trace minerals. Cool. So let's go on to our third of fourth of four sources. We talked about city water and we talked about aquifer water. Um, I know that you are particularly a nerd for water harvesting, um, as am I. Um, I really only ever think about rainwater myself, um, but but then I heard you talk about it, and you know you start ticking off the list of all these different places water can be harvested. So so let's wade into that, uh, pun intended. Um, where are, <laughs> where are good sources for capturing water, wild crafting water? All right, now now we're going back into the deep end again. <laughs> um, all right, so um, most people would uh, be able to identify a wet spot on their land, um, and it can be at the top of the land, it could be at the bottom of the land, it can be you know a little bog or or an area where the soil is always moist. What that is is that's a artesian well or a groundwater. Um, source that the water's you know oozing out of the rocks um so those are one of the areas that i would i love to start with is <clears throat> whenever i'm scouting a, a a client's property um which is the first thing i do i'm always looking for the wet spots and <clears throat> then i can say okay we have we have a good source of water um that we want to now direct and manage and harvest so that's one place um i love rainwater but you know one of the coolest things is seeing all these satellite images of um, what's going on in the atmosphere during this coronavirus. And, you know, I was horrified to see how bad the air pollution was um, in the tri-state, which is New York, Connecticut, um, and New Jersey. And all of that air was generally moving northeast up the coast. So, you know, we all have talked about acid rain, you know, back 20, 30 years ago, but no one talks about it now because it's not a popular top topic. So if I was in a situation where I wanted to collect rainwater in my old state of Massachusetts or Connecticut, um, I would be a little bit more concerned about making sure that I filtered it properly. And by filtering it, I meant I mean that I would want to run it through um, other accumulator plants. Um, hemp is a great one, but there's plenty of other ones. There's all kinds of aquatic plants um, that do accumulation um, or that, that clean the water. So that, so there's a little bit of a different spin that if you, you should know your atmosphere, you know, like the smog coming out of LA blowing up into the Valley. Like I would not want to harvest water up there without purifying it or having the, having the water have a time to, to go through the, the root systems, um, of plants that would, are known to clean the water. Um, so those are two sources. And then the other thing is that <clears throat> when collecting rainwater, you know, I love these, you know, cisterns outside people's houses and all the gutters go in there. And that's great. Um, the only problem with that is you've collected the rainwater during the time you don't need it. But you're going to run out of it real quick when you start using it and it's not raining anymore. So <clears throat> beyond that, I, I, you know, set up your cistern for sure. You know, bigger the better. But where the water comes out of your cistern when it's full, 
that's where you really want to get serious. Now you want to have a swale going through your property. You know, obviously you got to take topography into consideration. And if you're perfectly flat, it doesn't matter. There's still a slight pitch to it. You just have to get out there with a laser level or a hand level and figure out where that pitch is and build a swale and better yet a bio swale. So you, so you dig it gentle channel um, and you fill it with chips and then you cover it with a little bit of dirt and then you plant it and what those chips do is they slowly suck all that water up and during during the rainy season and then as the as the rain stops coming and the soil starts to dry out they wick that back into the soil system like we talked about earlier on so basically um, one of the coolest things uh, that i've worked on was where we dug a well a, a groundwater well to see how deep the groundwater was and i'm a big fan of this um so we found a we found the uh, lowest point of the property we dug a groundwater well lined it with stones uh, went down till till we hit moisture till we hit you know oozing water then dug another couple feet and again lined it all with stone um, and then watched it and we could watch the groundwater going up and down during different seasons well after we installed all of this water harvesting you know these swales and smiles that's another one which is going to be hard to describe um, without a drawing um, they basically raised the groundwater because as the groundwater went down naturally due to lack of rain now, all of a sudden, all that water that was being stored in those bioswales was slowly being let back into the soil system and accumulating in the well. And the coolest part about it was it's like we could pump water out of that well to do emergency watering, and that actually forced more water to come back into the well. So it's, it's, you know, it's a combination of, of managing your soil system, putting as much carbon as you possibly can into it to hold the moisture so that when, it, when you desperately need in the summer, it's slowly leaching out and going back into either your well so you can monitor it or just knowing that it's naturally leaching out into your plants. And that's where you kind of like get smart and you, you build this bioswale right through the middle of your field so that you know that the, the plants on the left and the right of it are getting the moisture and, and you can actually, you know, think of like a river and, you know, creating all these different forks coming off of it so that you're, you're getting these, you know, water uh, storage units in the soil in the form of a carbon, an old chip or uh, cardboard or paper, whatever. And um, again, you're planting the top of it so that evaporation cannot happen. That's, that's really important. I don't, don't store water in an open pond because you're going to lose it during the summer. Um, you want to store it underground, undercover, and and you'll 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 see such a big difference in the amount of watering that you actually have to do um, that you'll realize, oh my God, I should have done this years ago. When you say store it underwater, do you mean in I mean, big under plastic reservoirs like no, no. bury those? No, I meant underground. Uh, oh, no, you don't have to. You don't need a lining. You just basically need to dig a swale fill it with chips, take the leftover dirt, spread it on the top a couple inches, and then plant it with, with a cover crop, a ground cover. And what that does is that prevents that – like if you, if you just put the chips in and you dump the water into those chips, the air, the wind, and the sun would naturally wick that water out and evaporate it. So by covering it, putting it underground, under soil – 
and then cover cropping that soil so that the soil doesn't blow off and erode. And also, again, the soil could wick the moisture out of the chips and up out into the surface if you don't have ground cover to protect it, uh, the soil. Bare so, soil. so is the only or is the way that you access that water for your plants by planting your cannabis plants there? Because <clears throat> so so. No, no. Basically, what you're doing is you're thinking along the lines of wicking. So basically, you're storing the water there, but that water is being wicked out laterally, horizontally, upwards, you know, even up gradient as as necessary. So you're basically you're, you're you're concentrating the water in one spot, knowing that it's going to wick out and spread out um, in in a greater area than where the water is concentrated at that point in time. That a little bit depends on your soil system. You know, in a clay soil, it's not going to wick as fast. In a sandy soil, obviously, it's going to wick a lot quicker. So there are some other considerations to think about. But what it's doing is it's raising the moisture level in the soil. It's not it's not watering the plants. It's not like it's you know you're you're using it to, to surface water. You're just allowing the roots to have greater access to subsurface water and moisture. I understand now. So whereas a pond, you can actually siphon the water out of the pond with the hose and point it at your pots or your drip line and there you go. You're talking about we want to capture and keep as much of the water on our parcel. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Using the soil to do the work for you. You know, in I love the uh, I love the guys that have those um, water tanks uphill, and they use you know obviously gravity to to water your plants. Well, it's the same idea except for it's the soil now. So the soil is actually because you dug the swale, you put all those chips in there, and when your cistern overflowed, it overflowed into that swale, and that swale slowly the water moved down by gravity to the end of it, and those all those chips got what we call field capacity. They got as wet as they possibly can, and now they've held all of that moisture there for you so that as, as the ground dries out around it because there's no longer rain coming down, the ground around it is now pulling that water out of that bioswale and supporting a moisture level that it needs uh, for, for the plants to grow. Right on. I understand that. And I actually saw that a great example of that. Uh, gosh, was it the beginning of the last summer or the summer before? But anyway, at uh, Lady Sativa Farm in Humboldt, they uh, they live at the top of a mountain. And, you know, most of us go through a drought season and they're like, listen, during the rainy season, we have to capture as much of this water here at the top of the mountain because it's really wants to go down the hill. And so um, they, they, you know, they use swales and ponds and, you know, a whole variety of um of techniques that we actually go through uh, with the with the interview uh, with Rio from Lady Sativa that's on the YouTube channel that you can check out, and and um, you know his goal like yeah he's a he's a cannabis farmer but he's all like man he says I spend more of my time sequestering water and growing cover crops and 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 making the water work to leave my property as much as he's growing cannabis, which I found really interesting. Let's, um, let's, let's talk about this, the other category of folks, because certainly in the regenerative agriculture scene, which we love so much, there's a lot of these permaculture techniques that have made their way into the scene. So people aren't just directly pumping the aquifer, but let's answer this question in another way for folks who are 
you know, just growing their, you know, their six personal plants that are available in a lot of uh, states up to like the 15 that are available in a lot of states for medical. If you, if you don't have property, if you're not trying to sequester all of this water on your acreage and you just don't want to use your city water, um, I recognize that we have to be a little bit aware of where our rainwater is coming from and what it's made up. And, you know, especially if we live in an industrial city, what would you consider a, a, a simple and effective way to capture rainwater cleanly, you know, just to be, just to be working on your six or 15 plants? That's a good one. I mean, Again, one of the things that I said earlier about capturing rainwater, <clears throat> if I was in one of those industrial zones or in a city, um, I would want to be running that water through you know, some mosses or some other plants that actually uh, do clean the water. So now I'm making it too complicated for these guys because now I'm saying, okay, yeah, capture, capture the water off the gutters, um, but then take it and you've got to store it somewhere. Um, and Mo most people literally are, are taking it off the roof or they've got a big tarp and they're funneling it into a rain barrel and they, they've got a rain barrel with a spout and then they fill up their watering can with that and they go put it on their plants. I mean, I would say that's the default setting for most people, small cropping and, and capturing rainwater. Um, what do you think of that setup? Is that like, do you, to what degree do you need to add this step where you, you put it through some grasses or something? Uh, again, it's now we're hitting, you know, we're, we're, we're dividing the hair between full plant potential and yeah. just plant yeah, and just plant. Point. So, yep, yep. so it, you know, if you want to go to the next level, then that's what I would do is I would look at, you know, these different plants. Another thing you can do is get the old canary in the coal mine, throw a couple goldfish in there. And if these goldfish die, you know, you've got a problem, but if they're thriving and living, then you're okay. So, you know, that might be a quick, easy way for um, people to know that the water that they're using or collecting, uh, harvesting is safe because, you know, the, the canary in the coal mine, if, it, if goldfish dies, you got a problem. Another thing that the goldfish would do, too, is if you feed it, um, it's going to make some poop for you, which is aquaponics. So <laughs> a couple birds with one stone there. Yeah, there you go. So, hey, let's go ahead and take our second commercial break. Um, you are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is soil biologist and all-around good guy, Leighton Morrison. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynamico endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the current leading brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. This new product called Dynamico is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. since the product first arrived here last year. You may have already even heard about Dynamico by its original name, Dynamike. Now, Dynamico is available at grow shops and online in the United States for the first time. 
I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynomyco at dynomyco.com and find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O.com. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynomyco to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. If you listen to Shaping Fire and you grow your own cannabis, chances are high that you are very particular about the inputs you use for growing. People like us painstakingly self-educate on cannabis nutrients and techniques so we can cultivate the best tasting and cleanest flowers possible. And when we go to purchase those nutrients, we want to be sure that our supplier shares our values and is providing exceptional quality. This is why I recommend buildasoil.com to my friends who care about quality. Build a Soil empowers organic growers to do their best work by sourcing and shipping only the finest cannabis growing supplies. From organic inputs, soils, soil testing and pots, to lights, growing tents, sprayers, and cover crops, Build-A-Soil founder Jeremy Silva doesn't just stock his store with what's available. He goes deep to personally vet each product for quality and determine that there isn't a better version of the product that he could be selling. Because of this arduous process, you know that your options on buildasoil.com have been carefully curated to create the results you are looking for. Not only that, but the build a soil way is a philosophy that will permeate your interaction with the company. From website design to pricing and shipping to after purchase support, Jeremy and his team always strive to do their best and give you the best customer service in the business. Check out buildasoil.com today for top tier quality cultivation supplies and a friends and family buying experience. And check out their educational videos and extraordinary social media while you're there too. Quality organic growing supplies at buildasoil.com. For 20 years, Humboldt Seed Company has been family owned and providing reliable, high yielding seeds originating in Northern California. While the current trend is to slap one super male into a line of hype strains, Humboldt Seed Company continues to breed with precision and care by doing large sifts and back crosses to emphasize the absolute best traits that a line has to offer. This kind of breeding takes time, talent, and space to work. No matter what kind of aroma you are particularly into, Humboldt Seed will likely have something you'll love. If you love fruit, you can choose from banana, mango, apricot, papaya, blueberry, blood orange, melon, and lemons across their various strains. They have all gas, glue, and classic sour diesel lines as well. Of course, there are the Heritage California strains like OG Kush, Jack Hare, and Headband. And their award-winning Blueberry Muffin is one that delights just about everybody's palate, especially when concentrated. Humboldt Seed Company is proud to bring to market the infamous Freak Show Cultivar 2, which has a great THC high, but looks so much like a fern that some folks can't even identify it as cannabis. It's a plant that really needs to be seen to be believed. 
If you're looking for well-balanced CBD seeds, Humboldt Seed Company can turn you on to CBD strains that actually have flavor, like the dill and pepper terpenes of Willie G's Lebanese Land Race. Whether you are looking for regular, feminized, or autoflowers, Humboldt Seed Company has the gear to make this your best growing cycle ever. Visit HumboldtSeedCompany.com today to check out their line of vigorous genetics, download their catalog, and find out where you can pick them up. You can also check out their Instagram at The Humboldt Seed Company to check out their gorgeous flowers and the extraordinary freak show plant. Humboldt Seed Company, let them know Shango sent you. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest today is soil biologist Leighton Morrison. So here in the last set, we are going to be talking about best practices for watering because, you know, for something that seems so simple, there are a lot of ways to screw it up. So Leighton, what factors determine how much to water? I know for a lot of folks, we kind of just think, well, you know, let's just drench the hell out of it. And then that way I know that it won't dry out before the next time I come back to my pot but that's not very strategic. So, so leaning on the biological knowledge, what's the actual way for us to figure out how much to water? Um, listen to the plant. It'll tell you. Uh, if the sun leaves are tracking the sun or the lights in your tent and praying to it, you know the moisture is perfect. So when they're drooping, that usually means that they're either lacking moisture or they have too much moisture. And overwatering definitely moves soil particles down into the profile as well as washes out nutrients. So I'm a big fan of those blue mats. Um, you know, you can regulate it. Moisture meters are helpful, but eventually you'll get used to it. You'll just be able to stick your finger in there. And if you can feel it, you'll know you're in a good place. And if your plant's praying to the sun, you know you're in, you know you're in the, in the sweet spot. Yeah, man, there's nothing quite like when the when the plants are praying and they're all, you know, up, they're reaching and they're tracking the sun or the light and they've got that slight inverted taco look. Oh my gosh. When I see that, I'm just, I like give myself a little pat on the back and I'm all like, thank God I'm doing it right today, you know? <laughs> yep, right on, right on, Shango. The plant tells you everything you need to know. You just got to learn how to listen to it. So what are the, some of the factors that are going to um, uh, play a role in how much we're going to water? I'm assuming here Heat and humidity are going to play a big role. How should we think about that? Humidity is a huge role because if it's too dry, if it's, if it's the winter and you've got your heat on and your HVAC system is pushing heat all over the place, yeah, it's going to dry out. And that's where I recommend if you're in a tent, you get one of those little tiny humidifiers. They're, they're inexpensive um, and it will help to put moisture into the air and you won't have to water nearly as much. Um, so that's a great way of, of uh, preventing the soil from um, – wicking the moisture out and, and letting the air pull it out because you guys all have fans too you have to move the air around so when that wind is blowing across the pot it is pulling moisture out of it so that humidifier is a great trick and then of course cover cropping i'm a big fan of no soil left bare so that those leaves are covering up uh, every square inch of that pot and what you'll notice when you flip the leaves over and look at the underside there'll be a little condensation so it's preventing that moisture from escaping from the surface of that pot great way to prevent excess watering excellent i think it's good for us to point out momentarily you know cover crops do not steal nutrients from your pot 
No, they do not. And they build miles of rhyosphere, which crosses the roots of your other cannabis plants. There's all kinds of wonderful exchanges that are happening there, um, as well as nutrient cycling. You're getting extra, extra protozoa, extra uh, bacteria that are all functioning for you at a high level. So they're not stealing nutrients. They're actually adding them back to you. Fantastic. So, um, you know, a lot of us are slowly but surely converting over to um, fabric pots. And, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons why black plastic pots are questionable. Everything from the fact that they're plastic to the fact that, you know, they tend to get a little sludgy at the bottom if people don't you know, have rocks in the bottom. There's a lot of good reasons to go to the fabric pots. And then, um, you know, and then you've got like, you know, companies like, uh, like, uh, uh, grassroots that are, uh, actually lining the inside of the fabric pots. So they lose less air out the sides. But in your experience, Layton, do we need to water, um, fabric pots more often? Oh yeah. They definitely leach out, um, moisture out the sides of them it's the same thing it's like if you're in a plastic pot the only thing, area you have to be concerned about is the top of the pot with a fabric pot you got the sides as well that's where i always say you know you need some kind of vapor barrier to prevent that moisture exchange glad to hear that the pot companies are actually taking that into consideration now because in the past when you see these the sides of the pots would go hydrophobic so you pour the water on the top it run right over the sides and right down the sides and you couldn't get the moisture in there and you you talked about that last time about how you saw a huge difference with the cover crops. Now, you can't cover crop the side of your pot, but yeah. you, can, you can do things like put hay bales against them, uh, foam if you have extra foam, um, so that you prevent that water or the air from stealing the moisture out of the side of the pot. And, and also temperature. Um, we don't want the sides of that pot to get, to get warm. Um, because that's going to directly affect the biology. So by insulating it and putting a vapor barrier in on the sides of your pot, you're going to be able to use those. And I'm a big fan of those fabric pots. I really like them. Yeah, I'm actually really excited. Uh, they're calling these living soil fabric pots from uh, grassroots pots. Um, uh, they actually sent me out a couple to trial. And uh, and uh, so so I'm, I'm actually trialing the, the their pots, but then also um, their fabric beds. They've got liners on those too, because they're like, hey, you know, we all know that we're losing water out the sides and fabric pots are not necessarily as effective as um pushing the 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 water down to the the bottom of the pot because so often it just evaporates out the sides yep. so so anyway um uh, uh there's you know a lot of people who have used them because these are you know they've had they've, these have been out for a year or two already I, i'm just getting around to it so so I'll, I'll i'll tell you more of my thoughts in the fall on that um so, so, okay. So let's next talk about, um, hydrophobic pots. So <clears throat> I can cop to this, right? I'm, I have been the worst. I did not even realize what was going on in my pots until I heard you speak at the Michigan regen event because this, and, and I just know that so many people are going to like, Oh shit, that happens to me too. I would hand water my pot and I would watch the water bead slide across the surface of the pot and then go down the sides. And I'm all like, damn it. I want, <laughs> I want the water to go into the soil 
And yet it was going along, you know, it was just sliding off as if it was like the soil was a solid structure. And it was after listening to you and uh, Dr. Elaine Ingham that I realized that I needed to um, add a cover crop to create all of these opportunities for the for the water to go inside. And now I don't have that problem, but I know there's people who are listening who have that problem. So, so go ahead and, and hit on what makes a pot go hydrophobic. And, and I, and I'm assuming you're going to, but talk crap about peat moss too. <laughs> well, you know how much I hate peat moss. <laughs> Me too. And, and I've been blessed to have worked with a company called pit moss back 10 years ago or so, um, in trying to develop a product uh, Mott Hadley, you know, was grinding up newspapers because he saw his grandmother use newspapers uh, to line her soil um, in her outdoor gardens. And he realized, well, hey, they have a great moisture holding capacity. Uh, if I shredded it, maybe maybe I could get away from, you know, using peat. And he started this company. And through the years, he, you know, he's gone ups and downs. And finally, just recently, um, a group has come in and really started to grab this thing by the horns. And they're developing some wonderful products. I'm, I'm beta testing a bunch of them now. I'm actually working with them on formulating one specifically for living soil systems, which I'm really excited about. It's going to be mushroom compost. It's going to be core. Believe it or not, they've got a great source of clean core, um, ground up uh, paper pulp, cardboard pulp, um, which is an amazing fungal food. Uh, the biology that I've seen in, in so far in the, in the products that they've sent me, I either see a tremendous amount of spores or I see a tremendous amount of hyphae. Could you imagine being able to buy a soil that was loaded with hyphae out of the gate? Oh, man. What a, yeah. what a jump start. Hey, it, what's funny, too, is uh, uh, Pit Moss has reached out to me as well to send me stuff because they heard through the grapevine that I talk a lot of crap about, you know, taking peat moss out of the environment because it's not sustainable. And now here that they've reached out to you, somebody over there is doing a good job uh, yeah, reaching I, out I give- to folks like us. Yeah, I give Ashley a lot of credit. She, she oh heard yeah, me Ashley's all- the one who reached out to yeah. me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she heard me on a podcast and and hit me up because I was bashing Pete, and <laughs> so I, it's it's wonderful. I'm I'm ecstatic to be you know back in touch with them and and back in doing some trials uh, to see how um, they're performing and how we could formulate better ones. But I didn't answer your question. Yeah, so, what is hydrophobic soil and how does it? So happen? hydrophobic is is basically uh, that you have uh, organic matter, which is what the plant's growing in. And the, the outside of that organic matter is completely coated with bacteria. And those bacteria go back into that cyst form oh. as they dry out and they create that wax surface, which per, doesn't allow the water in. So in a situation where I have a hydrophobic pot, I don't have cover crop. Um, I would take a wet towel. I get a towel soaking wet and then I cover it. And so that that water slowly wicked out of the towel and wicked back into the pot. And so that would be the way to quickly, as quick as possible, take the hydrophobic uh, component out of the um, of the surface of that soil. Now, the interesting thing is with pit moss, it has a similar um, side effect that I've noticed in in my starts. That it does it does go a little bit hydrophobic on the surface, but as soon as you break through it, you can feel that it's nice and moist inside. So that's one of the things that we're talking about. Is like, all right, how do we prevent? the soil from going hydrophobic on the surface and, you know, I explained to them the reasons why, 
Um, we're playing with a uh, organic based wetting agent that's going to prevent it uh, from happening. But you know, again, we need some more time to to really get these kinks out of it. Product development aside, though, we have the answer, right? It's it's you got to have a cover crop. Yeah. Yep. You know, and like whether it's you know whether it's grasses or clovers or radishes or you know the build a soil like cover crop mix or you know there's a lot of really great options. But the point is, you gotta grow other stuff in your pots. Monocultures yep. are not natural. Yep. No, you're absolutely right. That is the answer. Um, but there are still people. There's holdouts that don't wanna you know, don't want to have to fuss with the, with the other crops because they can inadvertently um, become banker plants, or not banker plants, but trap plants and, and, and bring in other pests into your, your atmosphere. Well, you definitely need to choose your cover crops carefully. That's yep. that, that part is sure for sure. Um, but, uh, but it's hard, but, it is hard to go wrong. Yeah. And, and again, you know, if, if you're in a situation where you don't want to deal with cover crop, just get an old towel soaking wet and, and, you know, put that around the top of the pot so that, so that it holds the moisture in. Um, and that will prevent that, um, hydrophobic problem in the first place. Fabulous. So, so you uh, what causes the pot to go hydrophobic? Like, like what is the thing that people need to not do? Like we've talked about solving it. We've talked about using the cover crop and we've talked about, um, putting the blanket on it, but you know, we can even like say me, for example, what did I do to cause the top layer to go cystic and and have that waxy uh, top. What what did I do wrong that caused it? <laughs> other than just not having a cover crop. Humidity and sun. Humidity, sun, and wind. That's what's causing it. When 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 the wind blows across soil, um, it, it the amount of moisture that it pulls out of that soil is crazy. I mean, I used to do these monster landscapes, um, you know, for these billionaires, and you know, we'd be working right straight through whatever season it was. And we'd always get like, in, so if we got to spring, you know, mud season, it was a nightmare to try to spread soils. So I would have to be so careful to have the blender not blend it when there was a rainstorm coming or, uh, or even in some cases not try to spread it on, on the surface of the, of the existing soil until the wind came in and dried it out. I mean, I'd shut the job down a number of times because of these conditions and the builder would freak, the owner would freak. And I'd be like, look, you guys, if I don't do this, I'm going to turn this into a mud bath. And then you're really going to have a problem because everything's going to be rutted and you're going to be killing plants. And so that moist, that wind going across the top of that soil surface is probably the biggest thing. Second would be the sun. And of course, lastly, the humidity. If you do not have a relative humidity meter in your tent or in your greenhouse, um, then you never know how, how much moisture is being stolen off the top of that pot um, because of lack of uh, humidity in the air. So those, those are the three reasons. It wasn't you. It was the environment. It was oh, wind, so nice sun, or, or relative humidity. So how much does it matter the temperature of the water when we water the plant? 
Oh, great question. I'm a big fan of room temperature. Um, so, you know, if you're in a greenhouse, um, I would just let it sit out in the greenhouse before I used it. Um, if you're in a tent, you know, you're, you're probably at 68 degrees, again, room temperature. You don't want to shock anything. Um, it's like if you poured cold water on your plant, it's not going to like it. Or if you poured boiling water on it, your plant's not going to like it. So you want to have that water as close to the temperature, um, of the soil as you possibly can get. So that's that's a that was a really good question. So is there any advantage to bubbling the water first to aerate it? I know that some people do that to get rid of, you know, the chlorine and I know that other folks do it because they're actually going to make, you know, put some compost tea into it. But then I also know some people that do it cuz they're like, "Oh, I want to take more oxygen down to the root zone, so I'm going to bubble my water to extra aerate it before I put it in there. And I don't know if that's scientifically sound. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely sound. You can build the dissolved oxygen uh, in a water column through aeration. And that's why you do it in a fish tank because the fish, uh, I'm getting into biology again, but the breakdown of those, you know, the nitrogen's uh, cycle is creating um, CO2. And so the only way to get the CO, the dissolved oxygen level up high enough to support the fish life, depending on the amount of biomass, obviously, the more fish, the more bubblers, the more air stones you're going to need. So no, I'm a huge fan of bubbling the water first and then applying it because yes, you are bringing down a higher level of dissolved oxygen into the soil system. I think I touched on this last time. I did an experiment way back when where I measured dissolved oxygen in a raindrop in a sprinkler, so one of those rotary sprinklers that come out of the ground and then go and water in a pipe and then water in a drip irrigation tube. It was amazing. The dissolved oxygen level in the raindrop was 23 parts per million. In this sprinkler, I think it was 15. Out of the faucet, it was about 8. And in the end of the drip irrigation pipe, it was six anaerobic, six, five to six. So it was anaerobic. So we know you can build that water molecule up. I mean, there's a, there's a great um, video showing what happens to a water droplet as it travels through the atmosphere and it rolls over on itself like a donut. So it's constantly pulling in the oxygen as it's tumbling through the air. So no, big fan of it. Definitely aerate your water if you possibly can because that will help to support the life in the soil, especially if you have a really good living soil system and you don't have uh, earthworms or a way for that soil to really uh, build the tilth out of the gate. Then bubble your water so that you help to feed those, those organisms that extra oxygen so they can in turn build that tilth and allow that soil to respirate. Let's talk about a method of watering. You know, um, you know, everybody says, well, I shouldn't say everybody. There is a certain um, contingent in the home growing scene that demands hand watering. And, and I, and, you know, some of that is because of the effect of the, you know, hand watering and, and just giving the plant as much as it needs. But I also think a lot of it is that people like me who believe that a plant uh, thrives more when you spend a little time with it every day and you, you know, you're, you're more aware of your pest pressure and, you know, uh, you know, uh, changing color of leaves that might show that you, you might be missing some nutrient, but all of that comes with the moment that you spent with that plant. 
But we also, you know, while, while I have not used Blue Mat yet, you know, my friends are saying great things about them. But then when you scale up, it's much, much difficult, much more difficult to do hand watering and, and people, you know, sh shift up to commercial scale uh, drip lines and things like that. Is there really a, a difference to the plant, which one you use, or is this really simply um, economies of scale and and how this impacts your labor? Does it really matter to the plant what we which one we use? The only problem with hand watering is the inconsistency. Um, unless you're sitting there counting at each plant how long it, you took to water it, then some are going to get a little bit extra water and some are going to be a little less water. I get the concept of being, you know, out there with the plant and I'm a big proponent of being a farmer shadow. Like you guys need to be in with your plants all the time. There are the extremists that say, Oh, just leave the plant alone. Let the plant do its work. Yeah, I get that too. But in, in a monocropping situation, you're asking for problems. I mean, if you're, if you're highly regen and you've got all kinds of different plants and diversity around your cannabis, you're going to be okay. You're not going to have the kind of pest pressure um, that can happen with a monocropping system. And I believe that, that the hand watering comes in because it's forcing you to spend time with each and every one of those plants. So it's a good practice, sure, but you've got to be careful because humans are humans. And if you start daydreaming for a minute and lose your count, well, now you're going to overwater or underwater. So, you know, it's, it's a matter of being uh, – uh, more diligent in in spending your time, but in this case, I, the reason I love the blue mats are is because they're non-mechanical. It's a it's it. The only thing that's driving it is that ceramic. When that ceramic gets to a certain level of moisture, it either calls for more moisture or it shuts off and prevents more moisture from coming out. So it's a brainless way of 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 maintaining a certain mo uh, soil moisture level. Um, that's that's unique to anything I've ever seen on the market. So that's why I'm a big fan of it because it takes the guesswork out of it. So <laughs> this should be good. Um, in the category of guesswork, you just said if you get distracted and you lose your count when you're hand watering, dude, I don't even have a count. I didn't even think about that as, <laughs> you know, I, I hand water and I'm watching it and I'm like, meh, looks about right. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, no wonder I've got watering issues all the time. So, so how do you come to a water? How do you come to account? Um, basically, you got to start with um, obviously sticking your finger in the soil. And if you're not good at if if you're not good enough at that yet, another trick is to take a handful of the soil and squeeze it as hard as you can. And if you get water dropping out of it, it's too much water. You, you should be able to just get a little bit of a slick spot at the bottom of where you're squeezing it, but it shouldn't drip out of it. And it should, obviously it should hold together. It shouldn't just you know crumble or, or expand back to its original size very quickly. So that that's a great way of, of determining the moisture content of where your sweet spot is. But as far as, as hand watering, that again depends on your soil system. If you're all potting soil or, or we call it the soilless medium, that's going to take more moisture. Um, and again, problem is the surface is going to go hydrophobic and the internal is going to go anaerobic. So that's why I push that A horizon as, as so critical in this. And that A horizon is going to help you maintain an equal moisture profile from the bottom of the pot to the top of the pot. So again, it depends on your soil matrix as to, you know, what the count might look like. 
Um, but it's pretty easy to, you know, if once you start to realize what the moisture should feel like, you'll get comfortable with it. You'll be able to just walk up, stick your finger in the pot. Oh, this one needs a little moisture. Go to the next one. Oh, this one doesn't. Because, you know, another thing, too, is that these plants um, are going to react differently. One might transpirate based on the cultivar differently than another one. Um, you know, what, some of them are, are used to a higher tolerance of heat. Some of them are less. And you, you know, you know all this. I mean, the, the cultivars are also going to drive, you know, what that moisture level looks like. But um, start with that squeezing trick. That's a good one. And, and then eventually move into that, being able to just stick your finger in there until you feel that, that moisture level. And, and you'll get comfortable with it. Yeah, I think what I'm going to do is I think I'll go, I'll go down the line of pots and, and give them different counts and then go back in 10 minutes and do the squeeze test that you described. And then I'll know what my right count is because that'll be the pot that's reacting properly. Yeah. And, and I would even wait longer. I'd wait a couple hours, oh, okay. you know, to let, let the moisture, you know, migrate down into the, into the bottom of the pot and then feel it. So <clears throat> water them, wait a couple hours and then go back and check it out. And so, that would be my advice. so certainly people water in compost tea, right? They'll, they'll use some compost tea first and then they will water their plant to water it in. What do you think about, um, like having your water be compost tea is there a need for the fresh water in addition to just compost tea or like ah, they both have got water in them um they both have water in them but i you know i if i'm using a concentrate um so one of my products is a liquid concentrate then i definitely water it in i mean i've turned grass purple like literally purple <laughs> because I put so much on it because I wanted to see what was going to happen. Yeah. And the colors of the grass came out and it just screamed. It turned so dark green that it was almost purple. And I was like, wow, look at that. Yeah. The client's not going to like that. I better water. It. <laughs> <laughs> but again, you know, going back to compost teas, as long as you have biology, then I would say, yeah, it's not going to hurt to just give it a spritz after to try to move those droplets of compost tea down into the soil profile where they belong because they don't belong on the surface. Yeah, on the surface, they're just going to die from the air. Right. Yeah, in the UVs and everything else. So, no, I totally get the the practice of, of watering in. Um, when I was doing a lot of um, installation of product, what I would do is I would make, you know, obviously my concentrate, I would add 10 gallons of the concentrate. Then I would add, you know, 110 gallons of water, a little bit of foods, and then I would just go apply it. But I would apply it heavily, so I would do a soil drench. So some of it was getting the, – the continued spraying on top of it would push the, the first spray down into the soil. And I would just be like, yeah, you know, whatever, whatever evaporates or whatever UVs kill these little guys, I'm not going to be concerned about it because I, I, I drenched the soil. So I inadvertently moved those, the organisms down into the lower profile that I wanted to. Fantastic. Well, Leighton, thank you so much for sharing your time. I know you're you're um, on the road and consulting a lot. Actually, maybe even a little bit less right now in quarantine. Actually, you might actually be home quite a bit right now. You are normally traveling a lot. Are you even going to be home enough to put into a food garden this year? <laughs> Funny you should say that. I have done it. I mean, it's it's been, God, 32 years more since the last time I had the opportunity to plant a garden. So yeah, I've, I've been planting gardening with Pauline and our dog. He's out there helping me with the soil. I mean, it's hilarious. And so I'm actually enjoying the quarantine. I'm definitely not working as hard or earning as much as I would like to, but you know, it's, this is all going to 
you know, peter out eventually. And I will be able to get back on the road and, and help other folks out across the country. But for right now, I'm enjoying it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so blessed that I um, can still support myself. Um, I've, I've made enough money that I'm not going to be, you know, freaking out that I, I can't pay my bills. Um, so I'm taking the time, I'm meditating, playing in the soil, taking walks and, you know, life is great. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the quarantine. I'm, I'm sorry for everybody out there that's suffering because I know there's so many people that are, you know, that we're living paycheck to paycheck and are, are totally screwed right now. Um, and it's sad. It's, it's horrible, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm taking it with stride and I'm, I'm trying to stay positive and send out good vibrations to everybody. But yeah, I'm actually, I am growing a food garden this it, year. It really is interesting to see the revival of the victory garden, right? Oh, you know, yeah. You know, the, the long-term joke is that cannabis is a gateway to horticulture, right? And there's all these like new um, home growers um, that are suddenly going, well, I, I was able to grow a little bit of weed. Let me see what else I can do. And, and all, the, all the seed companies are, are breaking new records for seed sales and um you know even though there's uh the vast majority of what's going on with the pandemic is is obviously terrible um it does make me feel uh, some measure better that people are learning how to grow their own foods which we should never have lost that skill and and hopefully that is something that um can can continue moving forward for for all of us and thank you for bringing that up. That is such an important point. You know, we all should be having at least an herb garden, if not at least a few veggies. Um, and it's it's not a lot of work. It's not that hard to do this, whether it's in a pot or, or it's planted in the soil. And that's providing food security. And you're right about the seed companies. I mean, they're out of everything. And so, you know, I got to believe that the vast majority of people across this country are growing these victory gardens, which is great. And hopefully that never changes again. Um, because we can control the inputs of what's going into these veggies, and we know that they're healthy. So, no, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. That was great. Yeah, well, it wasn't intended. I just kind of stumbled into it because because <laughs> <laughs> that's how we are. So, right on. Uh, so, thanks again, Leighton. Um, I look forward to talking to you again in person when we can. All right, brother. Great to speak with you again, and have a wonderful day. If you want to hear more from Leighton Morrison, I encourage you to go on back to Shaping Fire episode 54, if you haven't heard that. And it's all about uh, soil, how soil is built, uh, soil horizons, meaning the different layers of soil, and how to properly build uh, a container of soil that mimics uh, the planet. It's an absolutely fantastic episode, and you will get to enjoy not only a whole bunch of good scientific information, uh, but also... So the gleeful storytelling that Leighton shares with us. Um, also, if you want to find out more about uh, Leighton's uh, business and his various products, you can check those out at Kingdom Aquaponics LLC.com and his Instagram at Kingdom Aquaponics LLC. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. 
Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.